Well, good morning. I'm always kind of impressed with myself that I can carry this thing up here without falling amidst you in the mosh pit. So I'm glad to. Glad to be with you this morning. My name is Phil Herndon. I'm on the elder team here at Fellowship, served for many years alongside my friends and colleagues. I'm glad to be able to close out a series we've started or ending today in First and Second Thessalonians, two small books that Paul wrote very early uh, in his ministry back to the church in Thessalonica. So really, really briefly, we'll move, kind of move into a, kind of a 30,000-foot view. The first, we'll talk about the verbs of these two books, the, uh, of this Second Thessalonians. The first <clears throat> chapter is about persevering through affliction. Remember, Paul writes to them and says, man, it was, it's been rough, and life is rough, and then we often face uh, persecution and affliction. Chapter 2 is about trusting amid, amidst confusion. Remember, they had gotten word, either through a forged document or or just bad theology, they'd gotten word that, that Christ had already returned and they were left behind and they were panicking, they were, they were uh, in, confused. And so that Paul talks about trusting God in the midst of all of that. Today we're going to talk about working. So the third verb of, of these three chapters is working, working while waiting. So Paul says, no, he hasn't returned yet. So while you're waiting, let's talk about the way to live uh, in the waiting. So Y'all know, most of you know, I spend my life through the week in kind of the field of psychology, and there's a kind of a burgeoning uh, field of psychology called workplace psychology. You may, if you read Inc. or LinkedIn or any of those sites like that, all kinds of stuff out there about workplace psychology, uh, how to have a high EQ emotional quotient versus IQ intelligence quotient at work, workplace etiquette, how to how to re-engage back in work psychologically after COVID and all those things are, there's all kinds of material out there. Sometimes what's missing or there's not a whole lot of is, the, is workplace theology. What does God say about work? And so it seems like a strange subject maybe for Paul to, to finish up with here, but I think you'll see by the end of today, it's really, really practical and it really matters about how we approach workplace theology as, as followers of Christ. How do we engage a workplace how do we work? What does work mean? And, and those kinds of things. So we'll take a, a look at that. So let's read uh, chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians in its entirety. It's, eight, it's 17, uh, 18 verses. Let's just read that, get a lay of the land, and we're going to have to go way back and take a look at the, some of the underpinnings that Paul comes from on this. So 2 Thessalonians 3, starting verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you're doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day and that we might not, might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't because we don't have the, that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person 
Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So Paul ends, like I said, kind of a dramatic book talking about eschatology. Monty mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, this end times theology in chapter 2. And then chapter 3, I would expect Paul to kind of end with a bang. Like, okay, we talked about Jesus coming back again, so let's really end this thing. And he ends it with what seems like a whimper. Like He ends it talking about work and people needing to work. So let's take a look at what's behind that. So Paul starts out, he says, finally, finally, brothers. Now, I grew up in a faith tradition when the pastor said finally or in closing. It was like a basketball game. And it's like, okay, on the game clock, it's a minute and a half, but in real time, it's like 45 minutes. So, all right, so that, that's not what Paul means here. What, what the word finally here means, it, it means, okay, in addition to everything we've talked about, we've talked about persecution, affliction, we've talked about eschatology, about Jesus' return, and now I'm going to talk about one more thing. I'm going to talk about uh, work. So Paul says, hey, I, we, we got one more thing to talk about. So he asked them for one thing. Um, we, we asked that you pray for us. Paul said, well, in addition to everything we've talked about, all these dramatic things, persecution and eschatology, we've talked about, I want to ask you just, just one thing, church in Thessalonica, I want you to pray for us. And um, if, if you notice, if you go back to both of these books, first and second Thessalonians, the only chapter in both books that prayer is not mentioned or spoken by Paul is, is in chapter four of first Thessalonians. So uh, this thing is saturated, Paul's entire life and ministry is saturated with prayer and so there's this list of things that you probably have in your own head about, about statements you've never uttered. I just wrote down two for me. Here are two statements I'll never utter. I love cauliflower. I will never utter that once. And I love math. I'll never utter that either. Right? I'll never, here's another one. Martin Luther made this comment. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer today. I've never uttered that. I need to. Uh, we need to, like the great warriors, those who go out into the world, into the work world, uh, tend to be those through great prayer life. And I, I, I wish, I love saying I don't love cauliflower and I can't stand math, but I wish I could say that, that I begin my very busy days knowing I need to really be absorbed in prayer and in, in, into the work of prayer. So Martin Luther says, the more I have to do, the more I pray. There's, a, there's an interesting little nuance here in the language when Paul says, pray for us. That word is where we get our word periphery, and it means surround us with prayer. Like, please be sure as you pray for us that you surround us in prayer. In April 1995, I was part of a um, kind of a chaplaincy team that, that rendered aid at the Oklahoma City bombing site at the Murrah Building. And um, I think I spent the first week or so after that bomb went off working with people who were rescuers and, and ultimately uh, working in the recovery of bodies from that site. And a year later, uh, then President Clinton came and did a dedication of the Murrah building site. And I was invited back to be a part of that. And I happened to be sitting next to a friend of mine who was in the FBI and he was pointing out uh, the secret, the work of the secret service. And so he would say, Hey, watch this guy, watch that guy, watch what he does, what so-and-so. And so when the president left the stage, these guys surrounded him and there was one guy in particular, he said, keep watching this guy. And it was the guy called the wingman whose job was to stay right here where the president would be the most vulnerable, reaching over to shake hands and those kinds of things. And that's the idea around surrounding in prayer. 
Like Paul is saying, me and Silas, Timothy and Silas and I, we need you to surround us like the secret services. We go about our duties, like the president was going about his duties. Please surround us in prayer as we go about our work, as we go about doing this. And so the idea of Paul is saying, look, before we finish up these thoughts around this book, right, what we want you to know about how to live this thing out, please surround us in prayer as we go about our, our work around us. So our church staff, our elder team, borough leadership, FSM leadership, people who lead, uh, frankly, which is everybody in some sphere as a leader, what would happen here if we surrounded each other with prayer? If you surrounded us with prayer, one of the most encouraging things that, that our my, uh, other elder team members will hear is when people come to us or email or send a text and say, hey, I was praying for you today, praying for you in, in your decision-making, praying for you in your family, praying for you in your work. That is so encouraging. And so if we made it a, a um, manner of life to when we pray, to pray for those surrounding prayer for those who lead. Um, so Paul says, I want you to pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. It's two interesting words are speed ahead. It means for something to move forward uh, in spite of extreme peril. Have a friend. Some of you may remember a guy named Tim Tebow. He, he's not my friend, but I played for Florida, but um, he's not my friend anyway. But so uh, I have a friend whose son played at Coastal Carolina University, and they played at the University of Florida the first game of the year. We, we probably know how that turned out, right? But so this, uh, this my, my friend's uh, son was a middle linebacker. And, uh, of course, they were playing Florida. My, my friend went to the game. And so afterward, his son came out of the locker room after, you know, they got shellacked 77 to nothing or whatever Florida wanted the score to be. Right? And uh, the, the son said, hey, hey, Dad, I know before you ask, I'm going to tell you, here's what it's like to tackle Tebow. It's not like a speeding train that blows you up. He's like a bus going four miles an hour. You just grab onto him and hope you get enough help to slow him down. So that, that's how you tackle Tebow. And it's a little bit like this. Paul is saying, look, this gospel, this word is going to go forward. And it's going to face extreme peril. And just pray as you pray. Pray that it speeds ahead. Pray that it just continues to go forward. Despite the impediments in its way, pray that the word of the Lord would do that, that it would speed ahead and that it would be honored. That word means to be extolled for greatness. It means to be exalted. There's an example of that in Exodus 15, after God parted the Red Sea, that was mentioned in the hymn we did just before, How Great Thou Art. The, uh, he makes a highway through the sea. Moses writes in Exodus, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and here's the last phrase, I will exalt him. That's the Hebrew first cousin to the word honor that Paul uses here, to be exalted. And Paul, uh, uh, Moses says, what God is this that just, com that just separates the ocean, and the Red Sea, and we walk across? That, that's the God. This is my father's God and my God, and I will exalt him. So it's the same idea of a word. So Paul says, pray for us. Surround us in prayer. And as you surround us in prayer, pray that his word, God's word, will go even in extreme peril, will keep moving forward, and pray that it will be honored and exalted and extolled for its greatness. Pray for those things. And Paul is about to tell them some things about their life with each other in the covenant community for them to remember. So verses 3 through 5, Paul knows what's coming. He's writing, this, remember, this is a letter he sat down and, and, and wrote. So he knows what he's going to be addressing with them. So before he gets to the main topic, he adds one more section. We call it the basis of confidence, just God's character. 
Uh, Paul says to them in, in verse 3 that the Lord's faithful, that he'll do two things, that he will establish them and guard them. He will establish you and guard you. Establish means to, like to, it means to, to turn something in a certain direction. Like it, uh, it, it describes Jesus in Luke chapter 9, I think it's verse 52, where it says Jesus turned resolutely toward Jerusalem. And that word established means Jesus' face was set fast toward what he was going to do. So Paul is saying, just like Jesus' face was set like flint going toward Jerusalem, that's what we ask that, that the Lord will do, that, that he will establish you. He will set your face like flint, establish you, and he will guard you. It's to guard a person or a thing that they may remain safe. It's a very childlike uh, way about us humans. I know a man who I was speaking to, and he was living with several other men in a treatment setting, and he uh, came one day, and he looked to another man. He said, I want to thank you for something that happened last night. And the guy said, what, what happened? And uh, this man was attempting to go to sleep in his room, and he told this other man, he said, I heard you outside my room reading a magazine or a newspaper. And he said, it took me back to my childhood where I was so afraid when I went to bed at night. But once in a while, my grandfather would be visiting with us, and he would sit out in the living room right outside my bedroom, and he would read the newspaper in the evening. When I heard the pages of that newspaper turn, I knew I was safe, that my grandfather was here. It's the same kind of idea. Paul says uh, that, that it will guard you. God will guard you. God will guard you in a way that you will remain safe. And so he, he's telling, doing a very childlike rendering here and saying, look, uh, God's going to do this with you. He's going to establish you, and he's going to guard you. You can sleep at night securely knowing that he's on watch. He's paying attention. I want you to bookmark 4 and 5. We'll, we'll read it again. We'll bookmark this. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. Verse 5 is a reminder and a prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And so I want you to keep verses 4 and 5 in mind as we go to the kind of the main subject Paul wants to address. So let's do a little, a little frame-up work first of all. So Paul's about to talk about working in the waiting. So I want to take your attention to uh, verses 16 and 17, the last two verses. We read them all ago. We won't read them again. I want you to notice what's happening. Paul is saying, I want you to have peace. I want all of you to have peace, come what may. Peril, infirmity, persecution, whatever happens, I want you, I want you to, to have peace. Notice he uses the word in verse 16, verse 17, you all, meaning all of you, right? I want all of you. Even He's going to ask the church to confront some people. And at the end of this book, Paul is saying, I want all of you to have peace, including the ones who get confronted for not working. So Paul's making it real clear. And so he's, he's sending a comforting word to a young church and so these words need to frame our understanding of what Paul's going to address with idleness and work in the church. So to frame it up, Paul's saying at the end of the letter, he's saying, I want peace for everybody. We're not talking about two different camps here at Thessalonian Church, Fellowship Bible Church. We're not talking about two camps. We're talking about we all together, I want peace for all of you, and I want some things to change. So Thessalonian churches had really three main influences when it came to this idea of work, like their workplace theology, if you will. People from a Jewish background believed that only like scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, they thought they were the only ones that were really doing worthy work. Like if you're a scribe or a Pharisee or you're kind of a, kind of a church leader, then you're really doing work and the rest of us really, we're just kind of biding our time till, till it ends. 
Uh, people from Jewish background believe that. People from a Gentile, particularly a Hellenistic or a Greek background, uh, believe that work was only for slaves. Like, I don't need to work, just people under me need to work. And then some in the congregation believe that since Jesus, since Paul had said, no, listen, he, he, he's not returned yet, they thought, oh, if he's not returned yet, then I don't need to work. There's nothing, nothing going to get in my way. I'm just going to sit and wait for him to return, and I'm not going to work at all. So those are the three kind of ideas. So Paul is setting straight their workplace theology by saying, look, there's a world looking at you, church, and some of you are in idleness, and we'll, we'll pay close attention to how important that is to Paul in uh, just a minute. So he's addressing those three populations, particularly the third one. He's addressing the church to say, look, there are those who are not working, who are not producing, who are not serving their community and their world through work because they think there's, they, they don't need to do it anymore because Jesus is returning. Paul said, we need to correct that. We need to take, take a look at that. So if you, if you look back in 1 Thessalonians 4, Monty mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there's, there's this idea Paul, uh, Paul said to them in 1 Thessalonians, he said, look, get to work. On his first visit there, he, he says, just as we commanded you in 1 Thessalonians, just as we commanded, which means when he first established the church, he said to them, be sure you're faithful at work. Be sure you're faithful in the marketplace. So clearly they didn't because in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's saying, look, live a quiet life and do the work of your hands. And now, now in 2 Thessalonians, it's almost like he's going, hey, get to work. I was like, you know, third time he said that to him. Like, so here we are addressing it again. And Paul said, look, I told you when I, when I established a church, I wrote you a letter called 1 Thessalonians, the first letter to you, and reminded you, hey, when we built the church, we told you to get the work. And now this second letter, get to work. All right, so he's trying to, to make a point to them there and saying that they, that they had not caught yet, apparently. So let's look at some building blocks of what he wants them to know before we get directly into the text. I want you to look at four particular verses. Look at verse four. We talked about a while ago. Paul says, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now go to verse six. Now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to keep away from any brother walking in idleness. All right? And then remember verse 15. Do not regard him, the one working and not walking in idleness. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Right? So Paul says, we have confidence you'll do as we command. We're giving you a command for the third time uh, about working. But remember, we're not asking you to, to separate yourself from someone who's idle out of meanness or condemnation or throwing them out of the camp. Remember, regard him as a brother and then how are you going to do that? Verse 5. Paul says, I'm going to remind you how you're going to stick with it, how you're going to be able to do this. Verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to two things, to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So Paul is saying, I'm giving you another command. Pay attention to those who aren't working and producing and contributing to the community. Remember, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember that. This is about grace. And how are you going to stand firm in it? Verse 5. Remember the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So in terms of workplace theology, there's a myth that sometimes is very easy to believe, and it seems on the surface like it's right. The myth is this. The myth is that the fall caused us to have to work. Like we only have to work because of the fall. That's not true. We're going to have to take, go, go a long way back. The, the curse changed the nature of work, 
but it didn't bring about work. Uh, Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. It means to work in that garden. Keep it means to watch over it or, or to guard it. After he had worked in creating the world. Now, this, this is a weird thing to sink in. Like, let this sink in. God, God works. It's weird to think about, but like God, God actually works. He, he, he does things in, in work. He, if you look at um, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, so it says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because in, uh, on it he rested from all his what? From all his work that he had done in creation. That's an amazing sentence. Like God worked and then he rested from his work. He could have you know, it's just kind of a weird metaphor. God doesn't actually have fingers, but he could snap his spiritual fingers, you know, and, and make it work. He could speak. He had spoken into existence, but even in his speaking the existence, God himself calls that work. I'm working. And so an amazing thought for us is like, no, that was before, that was before the fall. So before the fall, before Genesis 3, work was, uh, it was a, a righteous blessing. Like he put Adam in the, in the garden and said, hey, work it and keep it cultivate it, work this garden, and guard it, protect it, watch over. I'm giving you something to do, right? So, and, and so it, it moved from when the, cur when the fall happened and God curses, uh, God curses the work, curses the ground. He also curses the woman, remember, in, in childbirth. And it's a very similar metaphor. It's like, yes, it's painful uh, after the fall, but the, the baby that is produced is so worth it, right? So there's pain in childbirth, and yet there's a blessing in it too. There's pain in working, and there's a blessing in it too. And so it was designed to be a blessing. He put Adam in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it and to guard over it. Uh, and there's a curse on top of it now. And we have opportunity. Paul's getting to this. We have opportunity to, as we live, Paul addresses in Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. says, in your work, do it unto the Lord and not unto men. And in all things, give glory to God. All things. So God's a worker. He sees this opportunity to do it. And uh, we get to uh, Jesus operating our lives. And we, we get to elevate work back to its point of original dignity. We get to walk into the marketplace, walk into the workplace, and restore it to its, to its original dignity. That's our calling. So I want to turn your attention to, um, to a psalm, Psalm 104. We won't read the long. We won't read the whole thing. We're just going to read some sections. So Psalm, uh, verses 1 through 2, it's kind of set the stage for the whole psalm. It says, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So the psalmist is saying, God, you are so majestic and so amazing and so powerful. You have stretched out the entire cosmos uh, like it was a mere tent. Look at verse 5. He set the earth on its foundation so it to never be moved. Talking about power. 13 and 14, from your lofty abode or your lofty home, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. What's next? Plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And then verses 22 and 23, when the sun rises, I'm sorry, let's start at verse 20. You make darkness and it's night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. Isn't that amazing how the psalmist just weaves man into the natural order of things? 
God's natural orders, he creates all of this. He lays out the cosmos on his own. And he creates the animals that move about in the darkness and in the light. And then he created man. What does man do? Man goes to his labor from uh, until the evening. And so the psalmist is painting this picture of this majestic God who's all creative and all omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And he lays out the canopy of the cosmos before us. And the natural flow, the natural outgrowth of that is animals do what animals are made to do. And mankind does too. What does he do? He labors. He goes to work. He works this earth, this cosmos that God has, has created. We, uh, for years, some of you know the, the work of, and some of you know him, uh, Chip Dodd. We worked together for many years, um, elbow to elbow. And we used to tell our guys when they came in for treatment, we would say, look, um, we want to help you see who you're made to be in the image of God so you can do what you're made to do. And that's what Paul's talking about. I mean, it's Paul. I think Paul wrote the whole Bible. David, the psalmist. Uh, the psalmist uh, uh, wrote talking about he moves from this great, incredible, magnificent God who lays out all the cosmos and brings it down to right where we live. And what does mankind do? What's mankind made to do? Mankind's made to work. Mankind's made to produce. Mankind's made to contribute. Mankind's made to be positive impact, just, just like lions go after their food and the cosmos and the stars shine in the sky, and God's created that. Man goes to his labor. Humans go to their labor, and, uh, and they contribute. So seeing, seeing who we're made to be, made in the image of God, and God is a worker, so to do what we're made to do, to go and to contribute and to live in the world. So God's redeemed the curse all the way down to even, even our work. John Stott uh, recently just passed away. Here's what Stott says. Work is the expenditure of energy. He includes manual or mental or both. The expenditure of energy, so what we would call white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter. It's the expenditure of energy in the service of others. Work, as God designed, is in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker. It's paying attention to our identity, our image in Christ. Benefit to the community. That's how we serve other people and glory to God. That's how we relate to him. So Stott says work is designed uh, to be able to do those things. It's for to live out our identities as his image bearer is to benefit other people and bring glory to God. That's one of the greatest statements of workplace theology I've ever heard. And so we talk about emotional and spiritual health, uh, Stott lays it out there. Paul's laying it out there for Thessalonians. Emotional spiritual health is when I'm paying attention to who God made me to be, bearing his image. When I'm working and serving other people in service, and I'm bringing glory to him by doing both of those first two things. And so a guy named Matt Redmond wrote a, a, a book called The God of the Mundane. Here's how he puts this. The gospel is the message of now. Now you are redeemed. Now you are living as a member of the kingdom. You are disciplining your child, taking a bath, paying bills, and serving in your work as a member of the kingdom of God. And the reason this changes everything is because, listen to this, everything is now part of this life in the kingdom. If you are a kingdom member, everything in this life is now part of the kingdom, including work. And so kind of brings us a... Uh, specifically to what Paul is talking about here. Like, why in the world would Paul spend the last third uh, of this letter to the Thessalonians talking about something as mundane in work? It's because, and we'll see as we end today, it's because it's that important as members of the body of Christ that we are 
are serving and, and doing what we're made to do. So it really sounds kind of cruel. If you look at verse 6, this command he's giving him, it sounds cruel on the surface. He's saying, keep away from any brother walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. It sounds kind of cruel, but here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you're going to have to establish a thing that we call in our modern vernacular. You're going to have to establish a boundary between those uh, who are not living in accord with what this body of Christ represents. And here's, if you will pair two words together, it'll help you remember, well, what is a boundary? A boundary is something that we establish to keep from harm. So boundary and harm go together. Boundaries are to, to separate me or separate you from harm. So Paul is saying, people who operate in idleness, you need to put a boundary between you and them. Remember verse 15, as a brother in Christ, as a sister in Christ, not for condemnation, not for judgment, not to outcast them, but to set a boundary to say, I can't do this with you and support the life of idleness that you're living. I can't do it because it's harmful. It's harmful to your image in Christ. It's harmful to the community. And it's harmful because you're not bringing glory to God. So he's saying to them, set a boundary. And he mentions one of the things that come, come from the, the harm that comes from is verse 11. He said, they're not busy. They become busy bodies. It's a play on words on purpose. It works great in English too. But you're not busy. You're busy bodies. Like you're meddling and running around. And, you know, if Paul were around now, Paul would say, you know, you're tweeting and Facebooking and Instagramming and all that kind of thing, meddling around and picking fights and all this stuff and getting in everybody else's business. And as, as John Ortberg um, said, said when, when you're busy rowing the boat, you won't have time to rock it. <laughs> all right. So just give, we, we Paul saying, look, we're rowing the boat together here. We don't need to be wasting time rocking, rocking this boat. And so you're, when you're idle, you become busybodies, meddling in affairs and picking fights and causing discord and bringing attention to division and, those, and discord, those kinds of things. Now, if you notice something, um, four different verses, Paul uses the same words. If you can pick it up, verse 4, we command you. Verse 6, we command you. Verse 10, we'll give you this command. Verse 12, um, we command and encourage the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see the theme? It's called command, right? So Paul's using a military term. The word command is, is used most often in a military way, the, the, the Greek word here, and it's from, that, that, that comes from a superior officer. And Paul is, is purposely saying, look, I'm using a military term because in other places I'm going to write later about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. And as the body of Christ, we're not fighting against the world. We're fighting for something. And if you're not working and contributing, if you're idle and causing trouble and meddling around and, and causing division, you're off. And the word idle, by the way, goes with the word idle means to be out of order, undisciplined. It literally means out of rank. So Paul's switching to very military language here. And he's saying, Let me, I'm going to give you a command like an officer to, to an enlisted man. Uh, this is trouble. If you're living in idleness, we're commanding you. If you're working, put a boundary between you and those who are idle, not contributing. And if you're idle, get busy with work, not other people's business. And so he's being very military because we're in a war. He just talked about eschatology, end times in the second chapter. So in this third chapter, he's saying, so, okay, he hasn't returned yet. So what do we do? It's almost like a so what? Like, okay, he's not come back yet. So what? So work, contribute. And I'm telling you that in, in very military terms. So 
Paul's basically saying to them, look, the mandate God set down in Genesis 2.15, that's still in effect. Like God's still a worker. God still put Adam in the garden before, before the fall. He still put him there and it's still happening. And the next book, book of Exodus, is really a book about the deliverance from captivity. And the second section of, of Exodus is really about how to live in community. Like the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, that's a list of ten things uh, that's a checklist, so to speak, um, about how to live with one another in community. And so as, as um, there he is, see, Paul wrote Exodus too. Moses, uh, writing Exodus 23:12, says this. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of their servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. And we think about, man, I got to get, I got to get rested up for what I've just done. Well, Exodus is saying, 23 is saying, yeah, get refreshed, that prefix re, get fresh again. How come? Because Monday's coming, right? You're going back to work. And so, yes, rest from this and rest for the week to come. So if Paul, if Moses definitely wrote Exodus. <laughs> okay, as Moses, Moses is saying to, to the people in Exodus, look, refreshment comes from what you've done and where you're headed both. We live in, in covenant community. And so last thing before we wrap up, and this really is last thing before we wrap up, not, the, not how I grew up. Um, verse 10 that's in verse 10. There's a very important word in verse 10. For even we were with you, we would give you this command. Here's a command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There are situations. Paul's addressing this here. There are situations in which a person cannot work. Persons between jobs, something's wrong physically or emotionally or mentally. There are, there are reasons people cannot, cannot work. Paul's not talking to those people. Paul's not talking to people that can't. Paul's not talking to people that are unemployed necessarily. Paul's, not Paul's talking about people who are unwilling to work, unwilling to, to contribute. He's not talking to them. He's talking about people who are faithfully living out 1 Thessalonians 4.11, leading a quiet life and finding work for their hands, hands to do. So verse 13, here's what he says to the rest of the people. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Basically, he's saying, look, keep on. Just keep on. The word weary is, is kind of an offshoot of where we get our word discouraged or to lose heart. So look, don't lose heart. Just keep at it. Get up Monday morning or the weekend, whenever you work. Get up, get up and go. Glorify God. Serve your community. Live out your identity uh, in your work. And so do some bullet points to, to end. God's a worker. And he issued a mandate, Genesis 2.15. He put Adam in the garden. Keep it and cultivate it. Work, work the garden. It's normal and necessary part of community. Exodus 23 again. Jesus' redemption touches all manner of life. God has redeemed the curse of work. And he live, we live out his redemption and the redemption of that curse as we go about living in a community, in a society. And needs us to do that. So Paul is saying, look, set solid, redemptive, grace-filled boundaries around those who refuse to do so and are living in idleness and busybodiness as he, as he called it, in hopes that, in hopes that they will experience a healthy level of shame and see what they're not doing to contribute and join in the doing of living out their image too. Last thing, true work for the believers, a work of hands, head, and heart. 
my, uh, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a heavy equipment mechanic in uh, Amory, Mississippi. His name is E.P. Kennedy. I'm pretty sure none of you know him or heard of him. Very anonymous man. He worked his whole life in that little town uh, working on heavy equipment. And uh, my cousin and I were talking. They were in town a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, we called him Granddaddy, you know, Mississippi title. He said, you know, I think Granddaddy was the most contented man I've ever known. He was just content. Loved his town, loved his family, loved his work. Went and worked very, very, very anonymously. And I remembered as we were talking he worked on uh, diesel equipment and big pieces of equipment. He was working on a front-end loader one time. And I don't remember what I said to him, but I remember what he said to me. I, I, I wrote it here. He said, um, uh, I didn't know my name until I was about 20 because everybody called me son. He said, son, here's what he said, ain't no telling what this loader will, will move to build something I won't ever know about. But it'll matter to a lot of people. Just a beautiful statement. He brought his head the man, knew, the man knew mechanics. He brought his hands, literally worked with his hands, but he was talking about heart. Uh, this front-end loader is going to move dirt. I have no idea what it's going to move dirt, where it's going to move dirt. I just know that whatever dirt this loader moves is going to matter to somebody, and I'll have no idea who it is. That's a man bringing heart to his work. That's what we get to do as believers. We get to bring heart because we know that there, there ain't no telling what my work or your work is going to do. But here's what we know, because how God has made us to live uh, in community, it matters to him. And what we do is going to touch people that matter to him and that our work matters to him. So Paul ends this book in a very practical way, saying, as, as I said earlier, I want peace for all of you. And if you are in my, uh, idleness and you're minding everyone's business but yours, it's a bad look for the body. And so we go out and we're called to work in the workplace with, with hands and with head and with heart in order to show Christ fully. So we move into a time of so what this morning. We've had three areas we've touched on. So just take a few moments to uh, take a look and maybe ask yourself the question, who do you need to surround in prayer? Or what attention do you need to pay to where your confidence is set, looking at verses three through five? Or maybe what needs to change in your work life? Or what needs to say the same? You can express gratitude to God for um, the sense of mission and hands and head and heart he's given you in your work. So take a few moments to uh, pray and journal about that. We're grateful today for work, and um, I know I have been guilty of uh, forgetting your presence in it. I've been guilty of uh, seeing it as a burden or drudgery only, 
uh, fail to see the blessing, though with a curse on top, you have redeemed all things. So I pray, Lord, that we would enter our workplace, uh, enter our whatever our work is uh, with a way that is very understanding that though you are returning, uh, we are in the not yet time and our job is to live out your image in us in the world. So we're grateful for a reminder today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.